right, welcome to another episode of Dose of Dividends. I'm your host, Dr. Dividend, and today I'm super excited to talk to Mikey Heru from the Dividend Guy blog. Mike, what's going on? Hey, doctor. Uh, I'm super excited to be here today. Uh, kind of funny to to just meet up with like more dividend investors. So yeah, it's going to be a, a fun one. I feel it. I'm super excited to chat. So thank you again for coming on. Um, I want to kick it off by asking how you started your investing journey. Where did it all begin? Uh, it began in 2003. So I uh, at that time, I'm like 20. 324, I just finished my bachelor degree in finance, got my first job at a bank. And then I'm doing like underwriting loans for investment loans, actually. So like people that wants to borrow to invest. And then I'm, I'm thinking, well, that sounds like a pretty smart idea. And I don't I, I back then, I mean, you know, you just finished your bachelor degree, you don't know much about finance in the stock market, you're just like, <laughs> super excited. So anyways, I go to the branch where I work and then I just tell them, yeah, well, I'm getting married. So I would like to have a line of credit of $20,000. And then I tell my girlfriend at the time, yeah, well, I got that $20,000 line of credit. Now I'm just going to use like three, $4,000 out of it, starting to invest, just get my feet wet, you know, starting to learn the process. And by the end of that month, I was down like 19500 from the line of credit. I invested it all because I was just like jumping from one stock to another, feeling super excited. And that was back in 2003 where the market was going back. Like it was the beginning of a bull market back then. So between 2003 and 2006, I spent three, four hours on the stock market doing some kind of research, but not necessarily with a clear strategy in mind, just like jumping from one stock to another, trading pretty much every week, but it's going very well. But back then I'm young and I think that's because I have like plenty of talent and I'm a genius. And actually, just because the market is going up and I have nothing to do with my strategy, right? So I, 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 I speak with like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. It, that was like the best timing and the worst timing to start investing because it was the best timing because I made a lot of money. I actually bought my first house, built a, a $50,000 cash down through that leveraging strategy. So I went from like minus 19 to $70,000, pay off the line of credit, bought my first house. And then I thought, there you go. Everything I touch turns into gold. I'm a genius <laughs> and that's all good, right? And then some bad years happened. And, and then I realized, because the second time, like I sell my house, I have my cash down, but I'm, I decide to put it back in the market, start to play again with it. Thinking, oh, next time I'm going to buy a house, but on top of that, I'm going to buy a brand new BMW because, you know, like I'm a very good investor in right. what I do. And, and then a good smack of humility happens where I go out for lunch with my friends. And then when I came back at work, it's been like an hour that I'm gone. I opened my brokerage account because before I started working and then I realized that I just lost $10,000. Like one of my stock is down... 50%. What year was like, this? Uh, that was in 2006, actually, because I started uh -huh. to, at that time, I started to trade penny stocks. And you know, the good old story where you have oh, like a yeah. friend that has his dad that knows somebody that works at that mining company, and they're going to report amazing results. And, and I started to build a position and it was a penny stock, but the hype was there. So it was going up and up and up. And I was like, oh my God, like, there you go. My Beamer is right there. And then during lunchtime, they obviously issue a report on their latest exploration mines and it wasn't good. And then the stock dropped by 50%. And I ended up having to borrow money from my parents to complete my cash down for the second house. And then I realized, okay, that, that is definitely not a good strategy. And I realized at that time I was more gambling than anything else, even though I thought I was doing research, but really it was just like a lot of luck and a little bit of talent, but not the opposite, not the other way around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's so similar to the way I started. I started in 2020, right after COVID happened. And again, I was in the penny stocks just like you. And I was throwing money and I was like, I was like, ooh, I got an edge. Right. And I, I was just so <laughs> excited just watching these lines go up. And like I had a business background. I knew these stocks were businesses. But to me on my phone, there was just like I was in a casino. 
and yeah. this, gam- this gambling, it worked for a little bit until it didn't. And I'm so happy that I found dividend investing and long-term taking a long-term view on stocks and looking at the business as a whole before I blew it up because I stopped div- like day trading towards the end of 2020, early 2021, and just solely focused on dividend growth investing. And I'm so thankful that I made that decision because if you look at the stocks around from the that were like the top dogs in 2020, they are no longer the top dogs. They are no longer <laughs> ripping. Penny stocks are not ripping. And there's a time and place, but it's not my strategy anymore. And um, I'm happy that I found that before I made too big of a mistake. But yeah, what a story, man. What was it like? Um, What was it like just being on the underwriting side of it and just you would see people come in and do that? Is that kind of what? inspired you to take a loan out to start investing yeah the um where i was working it was for uh national bank where is a small regional bank in quebec so they are very strong in that province but not too much in the rest of canada so they had a deal with a large investment firm where those advisors they were making investment loans but the problem is they had no banks they were an investment firm so they used to go to like the the local branch around but the thing is they have the deal with a banker but once that banker goes out the new guy comes in and he sees a bunch of loans and then he's like yeah i'm going to get the investment so like national bank what they did is that they did a a partnership with them saying we're not going to go after the the investment business we're just going to do the loans So I was talking with financial planners every day about those strategies. And we were talking back then, like big numbers, like the minimum for the investment loan was a hundred grand. And that was just like the, like the small loans. So at the end where I was there for like, like three, four years, the last year I was just underwriting loans over half a million dollars. So it was like very rich people doing like very crazy things. But again, I left in twenty in 2007 that job to become a financial planner. So that inspired me to go a little bit further, help investors already, like take care of my clients. But that was also a very good timing to leave because in 2008, when the market crashed, a lot of those guys that were doing investment loans, they had margin calls. So you're thinking, oh, I secured my investment by like 15 or 20% more. And then there's a margin call at like at at like at 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 pair value, like 105. So whenever it is thought like you borrow a million dollars guaranteed by 1.3 million. And if it goes down to 1 million, well, then the bank calls you and then you say, well, Dr. Dividend, you need to put the money today. If you don't, oh, yeah. we're just gonna sell everything. So that was just kind of crazy. And the guy that replaced me, his job was not to underwrite loans anymore. It was just to make those margin calls. So that that went from a very exciting job to a very terrifying one. Oh, yeah. Because you have to call people that are screaming or that are like crying because they're losing a bunch of money. And you're telling them you cannot even stay invested. You have to get rid of all of that. So pretty good timing for me to move on to become a financial planner. And then it's kind of funny because the the route for me to become a dividend investor was completely different because when in 2006, I realized that penny stocks were not great, I just decided to keep doing what I was doing, but not just go with like mid to large cap, but not necessarily an interest for dividend stocks. The problem I had back then is I got married to the same girlfriend I told that I was withdrawing a bunch of money from the line of credit. So definitely that was the right She's a real one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Still with her today. So that's a good sign. Awesome. Um, I had two babies. I did my MBA. So I did not have three, four hours back then per day to watch the market and trying to make plays. And at the same time, I was building a, a side hustle, a side business where I was writing about finance. Like back then it was like not about podcasts and YouTube, but it was all about blogs. So I had like a, a personal finance blogs where I was pretty much talking about my background as a, a financial planner and as a banker, just to explain people, you know, the basic, like what's a credit card and stuff like that. And then I realized, hey, I can make money out of that. So we started buying and selling blogs because it was just like buying and selling real estate, but it was on the internet and the, the the price was a lot lower. So it was relatively easy to make good money out of that. 
And eventually I'm lacking of time. I cannot invest that aggressively on the market. And I happened to buy the dividendguyblog.com in 2010. So the guy who had the blog had like a huge following, a pretty solid investment strategy. He wrote about all his rules and all his like philosophy on the blog that was working super well. And then I started to work uh, to read the blog and I made him an offer because I, I kind of like saw him that he was like burning out and he was not interested in, in writing so often. So I ended up buying the Dividend Guy blog in 2010. And then I realized, wow, I can achieve good returns, probably not as good as before, but less volatility, less risk, good returns. And I don't have to spend three, four hours a day watching my account. I can pretty much do just like three, four hours to do due diligence on one stock. I buy it and then I can keep it for like for years, for decades, yeah. and it's going to work out. And then I realized, wow, okay, so I've just solved like a lot of problems in one shot by buying a blog, teaching me how to invest the right way without wasting my time trying to chase the next shiny object. That's crazy that you got into the blog before the actual dividend investing. That's pretty unreal story. Like you can't write that story. You know, <laughs> that's pretty crazy. I, I, I didn't even see it coming actually. Yeah. I was just like getting there. It's like, oh my God. So between 2010 and 2012, I, I slowly sold all my stocks that were not paying dividend and focused on, on, on dividend growth stocks and started my, my own strategy. Like Borrowing a lot of what the previous author had as a strategy, but wanted to focus a little bit more on the dividend growth, not really about the yield. So at first I was like, I had a minimum yield, like it was like 3%. And then I realized, oh, but I like this company. Like I, I like Coca-Cola, but Coca-Cola was like under 3% back then. So I'm like, okay, do I make an exception? Okay, let's make an exception. And then I realized, oh, I like Disney. Okay, so let's make a second exception. And then eventually I realized that the dividend yield didn't matter as long as the company increased the, the, the dividend every single year. And throughout the years, I also realized that if you have a business that is able to grow its revenue on a steady basis, it means everything goes well. So they have like good market share. They have a good products or a good service. They have like ways to continue to grow either by acquisition, by innovation, uh, like they spend in R&Ds. They just grow. And once they grow, they make more profit. So I was like, okay, so I'm like looking at companies growing their revenue. And then they also, many of them grow their earnings because it's one thing to grow sales but if you're not able to make profit out of it, it's not exactly what I'm looking yeah, for. Exactly. So I'm, I'm looking for a business that is also has healthy margin, a robust balance sheet that has like ways to make profit out of what they're selling. And once you combine those two factors, it will eventually lead to the business having a lot of money sitting in cash. And then they decide to share their wealth with the investors and the dividend growth. So right. I came with this idea of following companies, which I call having a strong dividend triangle. So like the triangle is like the three parts, revenue growth, earnings per share growth, and dividend growth. And when you have like, when you find those businesses that are able to grow them pretty much at the same pace, well, then you have a business that have like 20 great factors behind them. That's and, a, that's and a most Buffett time, wonderful you, business. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. And, and then when you when you dig further, you realize that when you combine those three metrics, you'll find companies with good payout ratios, good balance sheet, uh, the margins are healthy. And so all the other like ratios and financial metrics are pretty much falling in line. And 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 those businesses will go through recessions and they still have like such a robust business model that yes, it's going to be a bad year or a bad couple of years, but after that, they're just going to thrive again. And, and this is how I decided to, yeah, I mean, it's, and then when you go into those bad years, you have like a great opportunity to buy more. So it's even better, right? Yeah. Just because it provides an opportunity to, to buy those stocks when they get beaten down with the rest of the market. But if you can separate those companies that have a moat, that's one of the things that I really look for is those, there's a moat and you can, there's tons of ways to form a moat, but 
until you really see this business succeeding through decades, like the McDonald's or the Coca-Colas or the Procter and Gamble's until they weather all the storms. You don't know how moat, how strong that moat really is, but moat is one mm. thing I look for. And it truly does fall in line with the ability to raise prices. And if you can raise prices and retain customers, then you can raise your revenue. If you can raise your revenue, you have a better chance of making that to the bottom line as long as you can control costs. And then when you have the extra cash in the balance sheet, it becomes a buyback or it becomes what I love most dividends. So, (laughs) (laughs) and when you got, when you got all that cash on the balance sheet, it sometimes hurts a company to just be sitting on cash and it weighs on the valuation and it could be things that investors want that for the company to do with that cash. So why not reward the shareholders along? Why not like give me a little bit? So, I'm not tempted to buy to sell those shares because I'm receiving a little bit of capital along the way. And it, I don't know about you, but I do hold a couple of sh- stocks that don't pay a dividend. And not that I want to sell them, but I do appreciate the companies that pay the dividend and keep me satisfied quarterly. That income is growing. It's outpacing inflation. And it could become a really nice next egg one day where I get to the point where that exceeds my expenses. So um, yeah, definitely, and, and definitely what is cool also about it, when you look at the market that when it goes down and instead of looking at the stock price chart, you look at the dividend chart, you see that this one continued to goes up. So then you realize, okay, so the market may panic, but the business is still doing a lot of money. And that's kind of funny because I, I do have a membership website called Dividend Stocks Rock, where we, we help people invest with more conviction and we track Canadian and US dividend stocks. And during the pandemic, like during 2020, when everything it was crashing, if my business was public and it was a stock, it would have gone down big time. But it was actually quite the opposite when I was looking at my numbers because a lot of people had fear and they were looking for answers and we were providing those. I was running like private webinars for my members every single week like trying to give them as much answers as possible, as much content as possible. And it's kind of like counterintuitive because if anybody would have looked at my business, they would have said, oh, I'm not going to invest in that right now. The stock price would have been super low. But then I was looking at my revenue going up like double, triple digit every single month. And I'm like, yeah, there's more and more people coming in, but nobody would, would have wanted to buy this type of business at that specific time just because the market is too scared of volatility and does not necessarily look at what is really going on in the business. So when you see that dividend growing year after year, quarter after quarter, well, then you have a pretty good signal that yes, there is inflation, interest rates are higher, and it's going to squeeze margin for a while. But when the business says, you know what, we have pricing power, as you said, we rose our prices, revenue went up, And now we are able to increase our dividend by another four or five percent. So just to show you that confidence we have in the business model where it's all good and you can sleep well as a shareholder because the business is doing great. Yeah. And that's one thing that was a huge mental shift for me was just being able to separate the stock price from the business because all these external factors affect the stock price. But if it's nothing wrong with the business and whatever's going on with the business isn't against your thesis for actually buying shares of that company, then why would you sell? Unless you really needed the money, why would you sell? So mm-hmm. being able to separate stock price from the underlying business is crucial. And I got a little saying that I say to myself, I don't think I made it up, but <laughs> stock prices go up, stock prices go down, but dividends come in either way. So the, it keeps you happy. <laughs> Definitely. And, and if you're reinvesting it and you're at the stage where you're not living off your portfolio, then why wouldn't you want lower prices? Why wouldn't you? It hurts in the near term, but the long term, you're going to be thankful you stuck through it and kept buying at a lower price. You know, when I was a younger investor, I was I was watching others' portfolio or performance, and I always wanted, man, I want to have this stock in my portfolio that is up like 150%, 500%, but that's crazy. Like, those guys were lucky because they bought it at the right time at the right price. This is what I thought when I was younger. And today I look at my portfolio where... I have like companies that I've been holding for like more than a decade now, and they show those triple digit returns. 
So it's it's nothing about being a genius or being like a, a like super intelligent investor. It's just about buying great businesses, growing their dividend, and holding on to them long enough so that that business can continue to grow and the market realize it. And eventually, you ended up having like a bunch of stocks showing like 200, 500. I even had like some shares of Apple that shows more than 1,000% return in my portfolio. And I'm like, wow, that's crazy. But that that was it. That was just like buying the shares and keeping them, not panicking because sometimes it went down, sometimes it went up, but doesn't really matter as long, as you said, as long as the dividend comes in and it continues to increase, you have that signal that their business is doing great. And uh, I was going to add to that, like you as an investor can't control these external factors. But what you can control, I think, in the short term, if you're opening a position or looking to add to a position, is just finding a decent valuation where you're not overpaying for these stocks. And then in the long term, your best edge as an investor is just remaining invested. Like I think of the the Wall Street guys who have quarterly numbers to hit and they have they have investors to please. All I have to do is please mm-hmm. myself. We're like our <laughs> edge as, as single investors is just how long we want to hold these stocks because we don't have a timeline like guys we don't have shareholders to please we just have to do what works for us so i think that gives us a huge edge as solo investors yeah definitely i mean portfolio managers if they don't perform over like a few quarters in a row they will they will feel that they have to take additional risk or, right. or do something Good point. to make yeah. it happen and and as an individual investor you're just like yeah well that was a bad year that's okay like 22 sucked Okay, yeah, I'm, we move I'm, on. I'm right? good with it. I mean, yeah, move on. Like my my companies are. I still love those, and I always refer to my investment thesis. So the reasons why I decided to buy those stocks in the first place. So whenever the stock is down, I just look at my investment thesis, and are all those reasons are still there? Are still valid? And if so, when I'm like, okay, so that's fine. I mean, it's just like a bad timing on the market, but the company still do what it's supposed to do. So I'm going to hold on to my shares and it's all going to be fine eventually, as opposed to a portfolio manager where his boss is going to say, well, dude, like, like some investors are like now leaving the boat, they're selling their, yeah. their, uh, their investment. So you need, you need to come up with some returns or if not, I'll have to replace you. So you exactly. don't have that, that kind of pressure. Yeah. It gives us a huge edge. All right. Uh, that was awesome. Um, so changing gears to my next question, I, um, before I met some guys from the Canadian oil mafia, I don't know if you're familiar with those guys on Twitter, but <laughs> super awesome guys. Um, I never really looked at Canadian stocks. So why uh, being a Canadian, you get a better insight to them than someone like me in the U S would. Why should U S investors look at Canadian stocks? Uh, actually there are a few, like I'm a big fan of U S stocks, but there are a few sectors, a few industries that are definitely better in Canada for the way they have been set up. Like the most obvious one is the banking system. I think you have like what, like four or 5,000 banks. Oh, I just banks read in today, 4,100. 40, 4, yeah, that, that's kind of like, like it's, that's a crazy number. Like it's like, for me, that sounds like, uh, like you and I, you want to buy it. You want to build a bank. Okay. Let's, let, yeah, let's right. <laughs> get some funds open up. It's pretty much like opening up a convenience store. Yeah. And in Canada, we have like 34, but out of that 34, the big five controls pretty much, I don't know, maybe like 70 or 75% of the entire market. So that gives like, that's that that creates that oligopoly where they pretty much control everything. They, are, they have like a very strong base of clients, a very strong base of cash flow. And the other thing is, the federal government will do a lot of regulations around them to make sure they don't fail. Because if one fails, it's going to be like 20% of the country at risk. So you don't want that. But at the same time, you know that whatever happens, the government is going to back them up because they cannot let them die. It's not like Lehman Brothers and say, okay, well, there's a bunch of like financial firms. They can die because there's going to be others. Yes, it's going to create some waves. Not the end of the world. So that is like one thing. And what they have done, what I think it's really smart is they have 
benefited from this strong business model in Canada where they do not really have to fear about anything because it's super complicated to enter in this, in this market. And then they decided to expand their business elsewhere. So now you have like, like for example, my, my two favorite banks are Royal Bank and National Bank. And those two banks, 50% of their revenue is not coming from savings and loans. It's not coming from interest income. It's coming from capital market, from wealth management, from the insurance, from expanding uh, activities in the US or internationally. So they have this huge way to grow while in their backyard, they're safe and sound. So they have like their fortress and now they are able to just expand their ex empire elsewhere. So I think that's pretty much like the first step where you should go look into. And the good thing is, all those banks are trading on the New York Stock Exchange. So you don't need to go through hoops and, and like- That's it, the hard it's, part it's, is OT, buying on the OTC. I was like, yeah, ah, do I buy on the OTC? Because like there are some decent looking oil names that don't trade on the New York Stock Exchange that I'm like, oh, I've got to buy on the OTC. Um, but yeah, and, that's really and, cool. And same with National Bank, it's the same one. And like one of my favorite one is Alimentation Couchard, which is the second largest convenience store in the world. They own Circle K's. Oh, so okay, yeah, I know they that. are. Yeah, so nobody, everybody knows about Circle K, but the real name is the French one. But but yeah, so they they are huge. But this one is trading on the uh, OTC market as well. The other sector that I found very interesting for American is the the telcos, like the wireless businesses, because like on your side, if you're looking for dividend, you have the choice between Verizon and AT and T. Uh, AT&T not has been a great success uh, over the past few years, uh, cutting down their dividend. They're struggling with the debt, and there's a lot of competition out there. Verizon is looks a little bit better, but still, I find it looks a lot more like a deluxe bond where you you don't expect any capital no, appreciation no, from this that's one. That's my big. That's always kept me from investing in telecoms. I used to own Verizon, but I was just like, this air price is going nowhere. In the time I yeah earned like. Yeah, you get a nice seven percent yield or whatever it is today. But I want yield today, or do I want growth in a dividend or cap and capital appreciation over time? And I'd much rather have that. Yeah, because that's the only thing you're gonna get. It's the juicy yield, but that's right. it. While if you invest in Canada, you have like Bell, Rogers, and Telus that controls ninety percent of the wireless market. So similar to banks, they have like a, a very strong base of clients and. Like my favorite one is Telus that I have in my portfolio. It's like my fifth largest position. But Telus, what I love about it is on top of having wireless exposure, they decided to invest in artificial intelligence. So they're helping farmers to grow their crop with technology. They're they're into the healthcare business also. So they're trying to expand their business using their technology to become eventually probably like half telco, half tech stock. Which brings a, a great balance between growth and cap, like dividend growth and also capital growth. So those are like companies that are very, very interesting. And I think utilities as well. We have like very solid utilities. I know that you have some of them in the US too, but like companies like Fortis showing like 50 years of dividend or 49 years of dividend increases. Indian utility, same thing, like 50 years. It's just like huge business, like boring business, but good yield, good growth at the same time healthy payout ratio. So those are like sectors that are, that I think you would gain from getting from it. So it's it's like what I, I look at, a, at at an opportunity. I try just to find what I cannot get in Canada. For example, I cannot, like, I cannot find any companies that looks like Procter & Gamble or Coca-Cola or Microsoft. They don't exist in Canada. Yeah. But if you're in the US and you're looking for a stable bank or a growing wireless business, you're not going to find them on your side. So True. you have like, it's some, a matter some, of diversification, but. Exactly. There's some benefit to looking outside of your home country because like you look at the, the lost decade in the U.S. was 2000 to 2009 and you're looking at you, you, U.S. stocks went nowhere for 10 years. And that's a scary thought. Less scary since you have dividends coming in that kind of helps offset. But it's a scary thought to think of your money going nowhere in 10 years. So to look outside yeah. <laughs> of your country and avoid any catastrophic things that might happen in just your country there's a lot of benefit to that and one more thing i'll bring up with the a uh, with Talus. how am i saying that right tell us yeah 
Yeah. <laughs> so with them, they remind me a lot of John Deere. Um, I don't know if you've looked into the tractor company from America, John yeah. Deere, but they they have their core business of selling heavy machinery, but they have some sneaky AI artificial intelligence with like satellite linked autonomous tractors, which you would never even think. And these tractors wow. are I didn't running, even know that though. Exactly. <laughs> running remotely from satellites on artificial intelligence autonomously. It's like an unbelievable thing. Drones that know if you give it a map, you they can go over the field and spray in certain spots. It's like unbelievable. And we all need to wow. eat. And this agriculture company is just sneaky becoming tech like a tech company. And I, I just think if you dig onto the under the hood of some of these companies, there's so much to find that you wouldn't know just by knowing like, oh, John Deere tractor, whatever, right? Tractor company. But <laughs> super interesting. That's a lot more exciting now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Worth looking into. I mean, the dividend growth has been like mediocre. They had one year where they didn't grow, I believe. So they're not like an achiever, but worth looking into. It's a small position that I have, but super interested in the company. And I like the ag tech space. So that was awesome about it. looking over into other borders, across borders to find some other investment ideas. What I really wanted to get into, which is like, almost all of the reason why I brought you on in the first place, but I'm glad we had this chat. Uh, we went back and forth on Twitter about some industries that we wouldn't invest in personally. I would love to get your take on one of them, or if you want to share more. Yeah, it, it's kind of funny because you, you mentioned uh, earlier that you went into that oil and gas Canadian mafia where like a lot of people are just like pro oil and gas. And I'm actually quite on the opposite side of this. So it's kind of like, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. And, and, and obviously, when you look at it now and over the past three years, uh, it seems like everybody started to invest in oil and gas stocks at the end of 2020 or beginning of 21. And they all made like 500% return on all of their stocks and everything is perfect with those companies. But it's kind of interesting because they all seems to forget that if you look at the past five, the past 10, the past 15 years of return, if you're a long-term investor, well, it's not that great. And it's not about the returns because I get the... I get the interest where if you follow this industry and you are able to enter and take the risk and, 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 and be comfortable with the volatility, got into the bottom and then it's going to surge. Yes, I get that. You can make a lot of money out of that. But my number one uh, focus are dividend growers. And because those business models are tied to commodity prices and they have absolutely no control whatsoever on where the oil barrel will end. And it's kind of funny because I read a lot of people saying back in fall of 22, oh yeah, well now oil is going down a little bit like because like the peak was like what, 120 bucks during the summertime. And now it was like below hundred bucks back then, like around like November or something. But wait until winter kicks in and then it's going to go back to hundred bucks and even 150. So then winter came in, nothing happened. And then today we're still, and it's kind of funny because between, depending on when you listen to this episode, <laughs> it's going to be between like 70 bucks and 85 bucks probably, but maybe it's going to go back up to hundred. Maybe it's going to go down to 50 bucks. Nobody knows. So the, the oil bulls are going to tell you it's going to go to 200 bucks, but it's kind of funny. Cause I remember when I was a financial planner, I read like those hundred pages, like studies in 2009, 2010, 2011, telling me how the oil barrel is going to surge. Like there's no tomorrow. And it never happened. So my problem with that is it makes it incredibly difficult for a business to manage its cash flow and continue to increase the dividends. So when you look at the dividend history for most oil stocks, regardless if it's in Canada or in the US, you're going to have like huge surge. They pay a lot of dividend. They pay down their debt. They buy back their shares. Everything looks perfect. And now, boom, the oil price drop, and now they're getting back into debt. They have to cut the dividend because obviously they will prefer to continue doing business instead of paying shareholders, which totally makes sense. Yeah. But the, the thing is, it doesn't fit with my strategy. And I made a very important point to myself to never invest in stocks that are not in line with my strategy. Because the more exception you make, 
eventually you're going to get to what I call the garage problem, where in the spring you open your garage door, you look at your garage and you're like, oh my God, who put all that stuff and created that mess, right? I was sure everything was in order. But when you build your portfolio through like one year after the other, you don't really realize that you're doing this. But eventually you get, and I do that with a lot of my clients where I do portfolio analysis and, and now I look at them and they end up having like 60 different positions, like 0.32%, 0.56%. Some stocks pay dividends, some stocks don't pay dividend. They don't even know why they have it in their portfolio, but it like they, they got That's on it at one point. It's classic like a diversification. Have you heard that? Yeah, from there's, Lynch, that's the thing. Too many is like not enough, right? So, and and I decided like one of my trick to avoid that is just to say, okay, so I'll be incredibly critique and, and difficult in my analysis of this industry. So it doesn't mean that I'll never invest in oil and gas. I actually have some shares of Canadian National Resources because they show more than 20 years of the increases. So their business model, a little bit more sheltered against the fluctuation of the oil barrel, but still I'm definitely not a fan. Uh, materials, gold stocks, pretty much the same reason here. So most of the time, what I'll do is when I look for another stock to add to my portfolio, I will look at my sectors and I will also look at like what I said, like what I discussed about the dividend triangle. So companies with very strong metrics, and then I will start digging into the business model, finding a moat, like you said, trying to find something that makes sense. And then if a business shows a robust business model, amazing metrics, and it is in the oil and gas, or it is a basic material stock, I'm still going to buy it. It's just most of the time when I look at my portfolio, it's rarely over 5% of my portfolio will be invested in those sectors just because they do not fit with a dividend growth strategy. So I totally respect having your strategy and sticking to it. Like That's the number one thing for an investor, I feel like, is just to be able to identify what works for you and what doesn't because... When shit hits the fan, it's like uh, you don't you want to know what you own and know why you own mm -hmm. it and not be screwed when the time comes where you may have to sell it or it takes a big dump in the stock price because you want to be able to add with conviction at that level. If you don't have conviction, why you're just gonna take a loss there. Um, I totally agree with that. I totally agree that oils and oil and gas is a boom and bust sector. And originally why I avoided oil and gas was its cyclicality as well as fossil fuel nature i mean everybody wants a green planet everybody wants climate change to go away but are you willing as a person to live without what oil brings and i feel like a lot of us totally rely on oil especially up here where it's cold for us we definitely rely mm -hmm. on oil and anybody anytime you have anything made of plastic oil all right <laughs> it's it's everywhere medical devices so i totally see why we need oil i i think that supply is so constrained that it's primed for, I, I can't tell you where oil is going to go, but I think over the next few years, supply is so constrained that we need oil, especially with these Russian sanctions going on in the Ukraine and Russia. Um, but I think if you're going to be in commodity space, not just oil, but commodities in general, you have to have some type of direction of where you think it's going. I don't think you could just invest yeah, definitely. To, just, to just invest. I think you have to have some reason for believing why it's going that direction that you think. Um, and, me, and even right oh, now, it, it, even even right now, it seems like the the easy money is gone, and yeah. will will it generate that much going forward, or it's just going to become like a regular sector where you're going to find great companies and bad companies? But I don't I don't see a rationality justifying an oil price uh, or oil barrel at like 250 bucks, for example. Oh, no, I think that's absurd. I mean, if it, it's, it may get there in the future. Like, really, who knows with commodities, right? That's the kind of thing, the game that you play in that space. But um, you got to be, like, rational with your thinking. I think that mm -hmm. we as investors, sometimes I'm guilty of this too, is just extrapolating the trend too far. Like, oh, they're so profitable. They're going to be profitable forever. And if they could just keep compounding at this rate, I'm going to make a million dollars by this. I don't think you can extrapolate as far as we think we can, at least for myself. 
Um, and then the same goes for the negative direction too. It's like, if you're like, oh, this is going to be a terrible business forever. There's no way they could possibly turn this around. Sometimes there is opportunity there. Um, but for me, for the long-term investor, I want the best of the best. I want balance sheets, good moats, and a big history of supporting shareholders. So for me, I choose my oil and gas companies very specifically, and I hold Canadian natural resources like you do, um, very low break-even barrel. So even if oil yeah. comes very low, they still are profitable. And I also hold ExxonMobil. So I get a little bit from Canada. I get a little bit from the U.S. and try to diversify against country risk and then um, not let oil and gas exceed too much of the portfolio because I don't, I do want to sleep well at night and I don't want to, um, <laughs> to have my whole portfolio revolve around a boom and bust cyclical sector like energy. But I do believe there's a space for it, as long as you as an investor are willing to hold on to it. That was good. Any other ones that you won't touch? Uh, I'm not a big fan of REITs, but it's not in, against the REITs. It's more about the fact that they're like the way they are built, it's to distribute as much money as possible to their shareholders. And since I'm I'm where I am right now in my, in my stage of investing, I don't really care that much about income, rather total return. And, and I want a combination of capital gain plus dividend increases. So I have only one read in my portfolio for that reason. And it's a read that has that balance between like capital gain and dividend income. But for the rest of them, I don't find them attractive, but it's really more about the fact that I'm not there yet maybe one day i would like to have a little bit more reits and a little bit because it's like real estate's like super stable most of them like they're paying a good yield and it's you can count of that kind of like income but right now i don't see the interest where i can maybe go and put a little bit more money into companies that will grow faster like starbucks or, or microsoft or apple so i'm i'm a little bit more interested in in like the what i call the old technology stocks like companies that are mature but found new growth vectors. Uh, Texas Instrument is another one where they like they have that that base where they generate so much cash flow they can afford to pay a dividend and increase it. But at the same time, they find ways to to expand their business into new segments or or to innovate enough so they can just show like those great double digit growth for revenue and earnings. Yeah, and it's that a balance. Also comes with yeah, it's a balance. I don't want a company paying every single thing out in dividends because then they have no room to grow the business. Like you said, um, the only stocks I could think of that could get away with that are tobacco stocks because how much more are you going to improve on tobacco? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, and they're very high margin businesses. Um, but other than that, I really want a balance between reinvesting in the business. I prefer if a business grows organically rather than acquisitions, but depends on the industry, depends on the business, everything. Specific to that business, um, yeah, it, but, it depends. Yeah, it depends on their business model. Where, like, some businesses, like like Broadcom, has built that expertise. Where their business model is all about acquiring like competitors, integrating yeah. them, creating like cross-selling opportunities, and 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 creating synergies. But depending on the type of market and industry, sometimes it could eventually like they just grow too big too far and end up like G where right. they, they couldn't even like know like everything they do because it was exactly. just too complicated. Too much under the umbrella. They, yeah, they just lost completely the control. It was an amazing business, but at one point it was just like way too much for them to handle. Yeah. Are you a fan of the TV show Succession? Have you watched it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that uh, oh, TV show, actually. Such a <laughs> phenomenal show. Because I was going to say, they, um, main, one of the main storylines of that show, it takes place as a, um, a like a legacy media company that's kind of dying. And um, they're working through like mergers and acquisitions. And you just see like company like butting heads and cultures uh, against each other. And I'm like, man, this totally goes on behind closed doors. If you just... and, uh, yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I thought that was so interesting. But definitely put that on your watch list if you got some room <laughs> so worth I the will. watch um but i was gonna go back to what you were saying about reits i um i was a lot more fond of reits than i am now i still hold um vnq it's the vanguard like domestic reit and i hold vnq um international reit so i kind of just like 
by the basket of REITs. I don't want to dig through in that sector for what I think is going to shine. I'm not a real estate expert. I um I I want to avoid picking companies that may get like for lack of a better word screwed because of their position or their like lo- location or whatever the case is. Owned a company that was primarily San Francisco real office space, you're now looking at the highest vacancy record. But yeah. highest vacancy <laughs> in that city on record. Do you want to own that company? I don't. So, um I I've kind of backtracked on REITs a little bit. Um, I try to get some exposure to housing because I love the industry of housing. We all need a place to are always constantly fixing things. Um, so that's why I hold Home Depot, not as a pure retail play as exposure to the housing market. Um, that's how I get my feet wet in that industry, but I don't do as much. I found that interesting. Yeah, I do have I do have shares of Home Depot as well for the same reason. I, I bought them not too long ago, just thinking, well, you know what? It's a good timing because the like the stock is down a little bit. And at the same time, when you're thinking going forward, well, and, and one thing that kind of like very di- is different, very different from Canada to the US is when you lock in a mortgage rate, you have the ability to lock in it for like 20, 25 years. Where in Canada, it's like maximum, like most of the people will never lock over five years. Oh, is it so all five variable? years from now? Uh, not necessarily variable, but like even if it's a fixed rate, you'll have to renegotiate that rate wow. in five years. So if you locked it in in 21, it means in 26, you'll have to renegotiate. And obviously, you're going to pay a lot more interest rate. Oh, but in yeah. your case, what I found it very interesting for Home Depot is that in the US, people will be pretty much forced to renovate at one point because they're going to get stuck with their house for a long oh, time yeah. unless they're forced to move. Because there's no like no logical way instead. Oh, I'm paying two percent, and now I will have to pay seven percent interest rate. Yeah, well, nobody's you know taking that. Yeah, okay. may- maybe I'm gonna throw like twenty five thousand dollar in my house and then do some renovation there. And here's Home Depot that will come into play. And I think I think it will be a, a good growth vectors for them going forward, where a lot of people will probably rush to those retail store to to improve their house, improve the way they live but for a fraction of the price versus buying a new house, which oh, would cost that. like, that would be terrible. Yeah. And the median home in the U S is over 40 years old. So you're looking at a lot of repairs. If even if you move into a house or like there's just, you got the DIY people wanting to do projects. You have the contractors coming to get parts for their project. you got people wanting to renovate. There's just so many tailwinds for that business that I think if they can keep their debt levels manageable, They've been a great dividend growth name for the past 10, 20 years. Like, I think they traded around $19 at the bottom of the financial crisis in 2008. Could you imagine? Like, I was thinking about back to when oil went negative. I wish I was smart enough to just yeah. count on that. <laughs> oh, my. Like, now knowing what I know now, I'm just waiting for the next unprecedented thing. So hopefully I can get a little bit of skin in that. But um, what what opportunities? <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. Um. Uh, just to close out on REITs, I have become less of a fan of businesses that are requiring leverage to grow, like a lot of racking up a lot of debt to grow down the line. I've been wary of financials, utilities, and real estate. So um, those are that's one thing I've changed in my investing approach. I don't know if you um, have noticed that anything like that with you, but um, one thing about me is just I really am looking for strong balance sheets. And- yeah, I, I agree with you. I was lucky because I didn't have to do that much of a cleanup in my portfolio. I sold a pipeline business and bridge for that reason, though, because of interest rate. Uh, but I would I sold it as a as a um, with a gain, so that was a good thing. But right now, my portfolio is like twenty five percent in technology stocks, so that helps a lot because most of them like it's. Apple, Microsoft, Texas Instrument. Uh, yeah, Visa used to be tech stock. Now it's like become a financial. I see it as like one third tech, one third financial, and one third consumer discretionary because yeah, if people don't travel, I mean, if they don't travel and they don't spend money, they're not going to make money out of it. I'm kind of surprised they went back into the financial service sector, to be honest, because they do not hold the debt on their balance sheet. Same thing for oh. MasterCard. So that's the bank yeah. that is taking care of the debt. They're all about 
the network, the payment network. Exactly. So it's all about technology, not really about, yes, it is like a financial transaction, but their way of making money is they charge a fee to process the transaction. It's, so it's not really about the money. It's I had really no about idea the trust that until of I, the network. Until I dug into those companies, I had no idea that they didn't take anything from the actual banking. It was just all fees and they run the network. That is so... It's kind of crazy, like, right? <laughs> it really is so crazy. I think it is a tech stock. I mean, I like the way you put it as tech, financial, and discretionary because like you said, if you're not traveling, if you're not like fixing up houses, if you're not buying things, then they don't make um, And those companies are so, so much cash on this sheet. I Even though they're not a dividend paying stock, I throw Google into that mix too. These companies mm -hmm. just generate so much free cash flow. They could buy countries. Like it's absurd. So um, I'm looking for... Like cash on the balance sheet and no, and as little debt as I can find. And if they're growing, are they using debt to finance that growth? That's what I like to avoid. Do you have, so that was awesome on that. Anything else you want to add? Question for you before our lightning round. Um, yeah, no, go ahead with the, with the, uh, the lightning round. You ready, ready for, for the, it. ready for the lightning round? Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Number one, favorite pizza topping. Uh, actually, it's kind of funny, but it's uh, sriracha sauce. So really? I put that. Like, oh, yeah. I uh, like I put sriracha sauce. on everything, but man, I was not expecting pizza. That is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you just get like I a love cheese a pizza and sriracha? Oh, no, no, no. A, a lot of meat on it oh, and awesome. then a lot of like hot sauce. But yeah, uh, bacon, uh, sausages for sure. But yeah, the hot That's sauce good. has to be like it's a primary thing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so only I've not found it anywhere else because this is largely a Portuguese um, beat where like where we where I'm at is a lot of Portuguese people. Um, we have this thing called linguiça, which is like I don't know if you've ever had linguiça before, but no. it is it is um a pork, but it's like ground and has certain spice that like you can't get it anywhere. And it is just so good. But my go to is linguiça, onions and peppers. If I can have that. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to put that on my list because you know, I'm way. going to yeah. Portugal in a few months. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to put that on my list. <laughs> if you ever out. Yeah. Linguisa. All right. <laughs> um, next question. If I was going to Canada, where do I need to go? Uh, you know, it's pretty much like the, the U.S. It's a very large country. So if you go into East and the Maritime, go in Nova Scotia. The small villages by the sea are just amazing. Um, like similar to, to what you can find on the East coast, actually yeah. in, in the U S uh, up, up North, but, uh, yeah. So I just love the vibe, the crabs, uh, the lobsters, just amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you're going to Quebec, you have to go to Quebec city. Uh, the, um, the, 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 the old town where everything was built like hundreds of years ago, just amazing. Champlain, um, uh, castle also very great. And definitely my favorite part are the Rockies. Uh, the Rockies, right. like anything like between Alberta and British Columbia, just like so much hiking to do over there. Yeah, I love The that. landscapes are just crazy. Uh, I've been there for a few, because I, I, I took a pause between my financial planning job and when I created my, uh, my, my membership website. And we took a small RV and we drove across Canada, the US, and all the way down to Costa Rica. So we spent a full year with the oh, three amazing. kids and my wife, just traveling, having fun. And we spent a good two weeks in the Rockies and it wasn't enough. I have to go oh. back there just to tell you how much I love that, that, that part. <laughs> Did you uh, have a favorite spot in the US? Uh, the, um, I love doing the, uh, the West coast in Oregon. Like, oh, really? that was That's just the only amazing. West coast state I've never been to. <laughs> That's so funny. Really? I to, oh, yeah, I went the, to the ride over there and, uh, Washington yeah, this year. The, so I missed the, Oregon. the ride over there. The landscapes are just incredible. Um, I kind of like, I know that you're, 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 you're living near Boston, but Boston was like one of our favorite city to visit. Cause we, we yeah. visited a few cities, uh, Chicago as well. Very amazing. 
Um, but it's kind of funny because I was more afraid in Chicago than I was concerned when I was in El Salvador. Because uh, really? at night you don't necessarily want to hang around. Oh well, yeah. The thing is, uh, we 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 kind of like parked outside. It was like a ten minutes bike ride uh, outside of downtown, where it was like an industrial uh, parking lot where like truckers they leave their trucks there, so you can park for like twenty five bucks. And we had our our, our our bicycle, so we just up on the bike and then go downtown Chicago having fun but one day we came back around like I don't know like 11 p.m or something like that and then we kind of like crossed the wrong neighborhood with like the people staring at us just like dude yeah. what are you doing here you're like you're you're definitely lost but you're like this close for being shot because you're not yeah, at yeah. the right place it's dangerous so anyway so <laughs> uh, that's one place I've not been but yeah well, uh, great so during the day <laughs> not as much at night and it's so funny the places you named in canada because i've gone as close as i possibly can to them without going into canada <laughs> like when you mentioned uh which is hilarious because i want to go to cape breton island this summer i know that's off of nova yeah. scotia um but i've been to bar harbor maine i don't know if you've ever stopped there mm -hmm. but bar harbor maine's amazing and that is re really close to canadian border pretty much I've been to Burlington, Vermont, which is right across Champlain from Quebec. Yeah, so, so you're going to get this, this a similar feel. You're not going to be that lost yeah. when you cross the border. And <laughs> I just visited Seattle, Washington uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago at this point, and pretty close to Vancouver. So I'm like, man, if I just went a little north at all these places, <laughs> I'd get to enjoy them. But um, yeah, I'll be adding that to my Canadian bucket list. Awesome, man. All right, a couple more. Uh, last good book that you read. Uh, the one hundred million dollar offer by Ooh, Alex Hormozzi. Love Hormozzi. that book. You you read, I read it? it last yeah, year. I, yeah, that was eye opening for me. Like from a business standpoint, that was just crazy thinking. Like try to ten x the amount you would charge for your product, and first you're gonna find like a lot of people that will want to buy it anyway. But then that huge margin you're creating will give you so much room to make that product amazing. I was like flabbergasted and I actually tried it with my business and it worked out pretty well. So I was like quite surprised because we have like the, the membership. And then I, I started like a side business uh, offering financial projections and, and investment coaching. So I'm not a broker and advisor, but I, I help people. Um, putting everything in, in in control, understanding like the sectors and everything, and and I'm charging a lot more than my membership, and that worked incredibly well. I sent my first email saying you know, I have eight spots for the month, and now I've been booked fully booked for the next for the past four months doing the That's same incredible. thing. So, Congrats. yeah, that was like all coming all coming from that book actually. So yeah, thinking about like a book that changed a part of your life, that was one of them. Yeah, I found that a phenomenal read. And I'm trying to build a dividend investing course myself. And I would love to. Uh, I, I always just thought I want to make it accessible for people to afford. But then I can go one step further for that like one-on-one -on -one time or small group time where you can't you can yeah. charge that price and provide that value. Um, super and, interesting read. And and the thing the thing about, about that as well is sometimes we, we want to try to put everything as affordable as possible as as a as a as an entrepreneur. But, but on the other side, and I, I like his concept from from Ormosi is if you if you spend 10 bucks on an ebook, you may not spend that much time on it because it's ten dollars and you don't really care like if true. there's an outcome or not. Totally true. But if you have to if you have to pay a thousand bucks for that ebook, I'm pretty sure you're gonna read those pages like it's gold. And yeah. then you're going to apply everything there because you're gonna think about it and say, dude, I spent a grand on that. It better <laughs> generate something. I better get returns out of my investment. While just $10, you just don't care. You're just like, ah, yeah, well, you know, yeah. it's sunny outside. I'm just going to take a walk or just like have a beer on the patio instead of like applying right. what I learned from that book. And the the implication makes a big difference. And you only get it if you pay high price enough. So you get, you're going to get results. You out have of skin it. in the game. Exactly. Um, the yeah. last book, I, I'm just about to finish it, but it's The Acquires Multiple by Tobias Carlyle. Have you read that book? 
No, I didn't. No, uh, very short read, but very jam packed with some really like turn your turn your view around type stuff. It's like it really like blew my mind with the, some of the stuff he was finding. He uses um the acquires multiple is enterprise value to EBIT and um like what the he back tested this portfolio had if you just bought the most beaten down stocks with um, low enterprise value to EBIT and you just held them until they revert back to the mean it would have outperformed everything it outperformed Buffett it outperformed Joel Greenblatt and all they're doing is just buying really out of favor beat down stocks but stocks with not a lot of debt stocks with a lot of cash on hand just beaten down for external factors and I was like man I always wanted to buy the, the wonderful company at the wonderful price which I will still hold my blue chip sleep at well at night portfolio, but it opened my eyes to the fact that maybe I take a small percent, maybe I experiment with this acquire multiple approach and just see where it goes and see what happens from there. But I thought that was super. Interesting. I, I would be curious to see if uh, BlackBerry would have fit in that model back then when it was getting yeah. destroyed by Apple, because it was sitting on a ton of cash, like $4 billion, a P ratio of like four, yeah, no debt, mm-hmm. and it just got killed anyway. So there was a good right. reason why the P ratio was at four back then. It was just because the stock is about to get killed, and they have no products whatsoever. So, yeah. but, but they're yeah, still I, kicking. I Last time I checked, they're still kicking. And I wonder if you had bought that PE of four. <laughs> it's probably like a PE of ten now, but that's that's multiple appreciation. That's an expansion in valuation. Um, yeah, for sure. All right, last one. Best. Oh, we kind of touched on it before with traveling, but best place you've ever traveled doesn't have to be from that road trip. But, uh, yeah. Well, actually, I would say best adventure hiking to Kilimanjaro. That Whoa, was. Oh, you did that? Like, I I did that. Yeah, I did that last summer. That was that's unbelievable. Incredible. Like seven days. You're up in the mountain along with yourself, completely disconnected from everything. That was just crazy. Uh, best activity I've done ever: volcano boarding. So you can <laughs> Dude, do that in that? Central America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you like you can do that in Nicaragua and Cerro Negro. You hike up with some kind of like a sleigh, like if you would do that on like on in Bloody. snow. Yeah, but yeah. then then it's uh it, it's a dormant volcano where it's like just like very small rocks, small pebbles, and but it's like very steep. So you get to like fifty kilometers an hour, and then you just ride it off. It's just crazy. I mean, it's it's a crazy thing to do, but it's just amazing. And the best place to take like a one week vacation, I'd say uh, Lake Atitlan in Guatemala. It's a lake surrounded by volcanoes, uh, like small villages, just small places, like nothing completely disconnected from the world. It's just amazing to find those kind of places that still exist today that has not been... I would say like corrupted by like big hotels and stuff like that. You have yeah. to live like the way they do. You have to go to the market. Um, we were there on our RV trip. And then when we came back, we, we, we took another flight to get back there for another week. My wife and I, the next, the, the following year It was just amazing. Yeah. That's one place I've never been to Central America. And I find that just when you go on vacation, just immersing yourself in the culture of the people of that. Oh, yeah. It's just the best way to experience it. Like, I'd much rather be out on the street looking at through the market, shopping at the stores, like traveling around the city on foot or whatever public transportation than to just be like just in my Hilton hotel or whatever it is. Like, I want to I want the I want that experience of just being on the ground floor and like um, definitely want to do more international travel. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to branch out there. But it's been awesome hearing your stories. I got to catch back up with you on that Kilimanjaro. <laughs> yeah, hike is unbelievable. <laughs> I've done a little mountaineering in my day, but nothing like that. <laughs> that is so awesome. Uh, Mike, man, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Where can people find you if they want to check out more of your stuff? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Well, uh, first place, uh, my blog, the Dividend Guy blog, where you have like my link for my podcast, for my Twitter. So if you're looking for the Dividend Guy on, on YouTube, on Twitter, you're going to find me. And uh, my membership website where I offer a complete free uh, recession-proof portfolio workbook. It's like 70 pages. Uh, It's going to be updated actually this month where I help people understand all kinds of industries, uh, like like building their 
their strategy, understanding about like what they want to reach and so on. You have like a bunch of questions inside that book. So you go on dividendstocksrock.com. You'll find a free ebook. Uh, you don't have to be a member for that, but that's actually a, a book that I created for my members to help them. And I realized, well, that's too much of a good resource. Let's give it out for free and and making sure that as many people as possible can can read and invest with more conviction. Stopping those IMER fees, you know, and then just take control over your money because nobody cares more about your money than yourself. True. All right, Mike, thank you so much again for coming on Dose of Dividends. I look forward to chatting with you again on Twitter. Um, guys, make sure you check it out and thank you for listening. Thanks, man. It has been a pleasure. And uh, I hope that you're going to get on my podcast one day. Yeah, I would love to. Take it easy. The opinions expressed on this podcast are for informational, educational, or entertainment purposes only. The speakers on this podcast may buy or sell any positions mentioned at any time. I do not and will not encourage you to buy any specific investment security. You should contact a professional and conduct thorough due diligence before making any investing-related decisions.